as you read through the scriptures, uh, you see a lot of stories, a lot of ways that Jesus interacted with people that kind of turned the uh, expected interaction on its head. And one of those is John chapter 4. It's the famous encounter of the woman at the well. And Jesus, he's, he's hanging out in the land north of Israel, and a Samaritan woman comes to the well in the middle of the day to draw water. Now, there's a lot of layers to this story. Uh, you have Jesus, who is a Jewish male, addressing a Samaritan woman. And th- this woman comes at the hottest part of the day to draw water, likely trying to maybe avoid the attention of some of the other townsfolk. And the two of them get into a theological conversation. And the woman states to Jesus, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say, and she's referring to the Israelites, that in Jerusalem is is the place where people ought to worship. In essence, she's kind of asking Jesus, what is the true mode and location for worship of God? To answer, Jesus says, this is John 4, verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, up until that time, there was a very ordered manner of worship. Worship was accomplished through the sacrificial system in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, following the years of the reign of David, there was a civil war in Israel, and the northern kingdom got in trouble because they built what the Bible calls high places. The northern kingdom was cut off from Jerusalem. They were cut off from the temple, which was in the south. And so what they did is they constructed altars so that they could offer sacrifices to Yahweh. So initially, when these high places were built, it was, they, they were initially trying to be faithful. But time and time again through the kings and the prophets, God says that was not the right way. That way, mode of worship was off limits and was disobedient. So fast forward back to this encounter. This is what the woman means when she says, our fathers worshiped God on this mountain. She's referring to these high places because Jesus is in the kingdom of Samaria. And, but Jesus says that it is, what's important is not the mode, it's not the location of that worship, but that worship ought to be done in spirit and truth. He's saying that there has been a democratization of God's worship. No longer does Jerusalem have the corner on the market of what it meant to worship God to enter into his presence. And then Jesus takes it a step further, and he says, revealing a little bit more of the heart of worship, saying that God seeks people to worship him. God is in the habit of finding people who will give their lives over to him in worship. So this morning, we're going to continue our series through the spiritual disciplines, looking at Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline, as our, as our kind of structure. And so today, we're looking at the corporate practice of worship. Now, when you hear the word worship, you might think about our Sunday morning worship services, or maybe you think about just singing, and that is part of what it means to worship. Perhaps the culmination of our worship, but it also uh, involves a lot more than that. So let's take some time this morning to define worship, 
take a look at some of the rituals or forms that that worship often takes. We'll look at why it is a corporate discipline, which I think is very important right now in this age that we're living in in a highly individualistic culture of the 21st century. And then by way of application, I want to provide some ingredients that can help to deepen our worship of God. So first for worship, I I like the way Richard Foster puts it. He says, worship is the human response to the divine initiative. Worship is the human response to the divine initiative. This fits what we just saw in the Gospel of John. God is seeking out communities of people to worship him in spirit and truth. Foster puts it another way also. He says, worship is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. Now, in both of those definitions of worship for us, it's not something that we do in order to get God's attention, but it's in response to the love that he has showcased to us. So worship begins with God. Now, different traditions reflect a diversity of opinion as to what that experience of worship ought to look like. You might have Catholic churches where communion is the center of the service. That's why it's called Mass. Non-denominational churches largely focus on the preaching of the Word as kind of their central point. Different churches might put weight on uh, vocal elements like singing or the recitation of pre-written confessions of sin, right? These different traditions have different forms or rituals that they use to enter into the presence of God. And the word that is typically used for these expressions is liturgy. Now, when you hear the word liturgy, you might think of an Anglican church reading out of the Book of Common Prayer with its scripted prayers and responses. But everyone has a liturgy. It's not just the high churches that have liturgy. Liturgy is really just a way to describe the flow of the service, right? Even churches like ours that don't use, you know, we don't have programs that we hand out anymore, but we still have a liturgy. If you've been coming here for any amount of time, you probably know what to expect and when to expect it in the service. You know, we open with an introduction, some kind of call to worship, a Bible passage. We sing a few songs, We pause for our collection of the offering, or if it's the first Sunday of the month, we pause elsewhere for communion. Dismiss the kids, give the announcements, maybe in reverse order this morning. Preach for about 35 minutes and then close with a final song and have our benediction before we go our way. Or if it's a day like today or in two weeks, we'll hang out together, break some bread together. All of these elements... Any church that has a liturgy, that has a flow, each of them is meant to draw our attention in various ways to God and worship. But what's important to note in them is that the forms themselves are not what produces worship. They might be a conduit of worship, but even the best tools don't equate worship until the Spirit of God touches our spirit. Some of you may have had experiences in higher churches where it's a recitation of, you know, written things. And for some of you, that might make those words come alive and connect with God, but others it feels rote. I think in one situation, the form could be an expression of worship, and others it, it might not be. Richard Foster said it this way. He said, singing, praying, praising may all lead to worship, but worship is more than any of them. Our spirit must be ignited by the divine fire. So what this means is that there aren't any 
correct liturgies to worship God. Scripture provides many different avenues of what worship can look like in a corporate setting like this. We all have some form, but there's no right way. Admittedly, there's probably a lot of wrong ways, but there is no correct manner. But I would say there are a few expectations that I think the the Bible gives as the the bare-bone requirements for worship. If we look at the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, right out of the gate, God reminds the people of Israel that he alone is God, right? That he is the one who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They didn't do it themselves. And he says, commandment number two, they're not to have any gods beside him. What this means is that when it comes to worship, the Lord God alone is the one worthy of our worship. This is what Jesus uses as his fodder against Satan. You know, Satan says, hey, if you bow down, if you worship me, I can give you all this stuff, all the kingdoms, all the glory, all this. And Jesus says, no, in Matthew 4.10, quoting from probably Deuteronomy as opposed to Exodus. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God alone, and him only shall you serve. Now, in our, our modern culture, sometimes it's difficult for us to connect those dots with these other gods that are forbidden. I mean, surely, I, I'm, I'm willing to guess that you don't have little statues little idols in your homes that you're like bowing down to. I mean, if you, maybe you do, and that's a problem. We should talk about that. But chances are you don't. But we are prone, all of us are prone to worship tangible things that are not God. We worship the dollar in our bank account. It's what motivates our workaho- workaholic culture of efficiency, just to get a little bit more. It's why Christians on average give 2% of their income to God's kingdom, a far cry from the 10% tithe that is suggested in the scriptures. We worship popularity. This motivates our fashion trends. It affects what we buy, why celebrities are paid outrageous amounts of money to market goods. Because if they, if they wear that, you know, those pairs of shoes, we're likely to want them as well. In fact, that's probably what that, that uh, new movie about Michael Jordan coming out is probably about, right? They picked this, you know, Michael Jordan to be the front and center, you know, individual for Nike for, to market these Air Jordans, and people are paying hundreds of dollars for a sneaker. That probably costs, you know, a couple bucks to make, if that. We worship leisure. It motivates us to spend 15 minutes, if that, in prayer, in the scriptures, but we're not going to bat an eyelash if, you know, at the end of the night we've binged a few hours of our show. There are things that we worship, created goods that we worship where we're putting our attention that are not God. But the scriptures are clear that we're to worship God alone. We worship him for who he is and for what he's done. But I think there's more that can be said about this. Jesus, uh, in Mark 12, verse 30, paraphrases the Shema, that bastion of Jewish theology, when he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus says this is the first and greatest commandment, and it's about worship, that we love the Lord first with our whole being. We worship God first and then if we serve others, right, love our neighbors as ourselves, that's second. Now, there is a temptation to elevate our service above our worship of God. When we substitute service for worship, it's idolatry. If you've been reading with us in the, in the Pete Scazzera book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he describes this habit that we substitute being with God 
for doing things for God, what we would call ministry. And I know this is something that I, I struggle with because it's easier to measure when I've done something for God. It's tangible. I might feel like I've accomplished something. It's an easy substitute to just be busy for God than it is to slow down enough to be with God. But this is not what God's called us to. Our focus in worship is not stuff. It's not activity. It's not even religious activity for God. But we come to worship and honor and glorify God alone. So it's a little bit of background on worship, what, what I think the scriptures teach us what worship is. Now, I just want to make a comment on worship being listed as a corporate discipline in Foster's book because, you know, in our generation, it's very common uh, to hear people focus on that. We are such an individualistic culture, and it's easy to focus on that individual response with God as if, you know, I just, I prayed this prayer, and I have this personal relationship with God. I hear people all the time say, like, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, and so in, an, in a hyper-individualized culture, we think of worship as me and God. You know, maybe you got some praise music throws, thrown in there. I know in high school I had become a Christian, my freshman year of high school, and I, my family wasn't really going to church anywhere, uh, and I didn't have a community. It was just me, my Bible, and God, and thankfully the, the OC Supertones. That was a very influential, yeah, some, some recognition out there. It was a very influential band to kind of help me uh, stay connected and tethered. Uh, but I wasn't connected, and I was aimless. I knew the stories, but I needed people to help me connect the dots and got involved in a community and in a fellowship in college, and that really made all the difference. But, um, you know, George Barna, another example, who founded the, the church research organization called Barna, once said that you could just as easily have church out on the golf course with a couple of friends. The problem is I think these perspectives miss the biblical thrust on how we see worship embodied in the scriptures. All right, because we were created to be in relationship. Those opening chapters of Genesis, God made this good creation, but, but there was one thing that was not good. God had created Adam, created man in the garden, and it says that it was not good for man to be alone. Now, you would have thought that Adam had everything he needed Right? He was provided for, he had a close, intimate relationship with God, but yet that was not sufficient to God's design. So God created another human being, Eve. Now we use this passage, almost, you know, 99% of the time you hear it talked about, it's used to describe the initiation of marriage, which it is that. But beyond that, it's the start of community among humanity. Right? Because God had existed before the foundation of time in relationship with himself in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we were created. It's not good for us to be alone. We're created to be in relationship with one another as we seek the Lord. The early church got this. They focused so much on togetherness in their worship. There are countless numbers of, you know, quote, one another passages. You know, with one another, do this with one another, each other. It's assumed that the pursuit of faith was lived out in community. The writer of Hebrews makes this clear. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. The author says, And let us consider how to store up once, to, excuse me, not store up, we don't store up each other, to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we're called to continue to gather together with one another to worship the Lord. You can connect with God individually. 
Jesus Christ is the only mediator that we need to connect with God. But it's not God's design. God's design is for the family of God that we are created to worship together, which is why I think Foster lists this as a corporate discipline, because it's something that we do together. Now, for the rest of our time, what's left? I want to try to go a little bit deeper and give some concrete examples to help us frame worship for us, to give us seven ingredients that can help deepen our sense of worship. So the first is this. We can deepen our worship through practicing the presence of God daily. And I'm sure some of you are familiar with this uh, individual in church history, but Brother Lawrence, he was a 17th century monk, and, and he wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. And in it, he describes learning to tune into the presence of God in all situations. And for Brother Lawrence, he kind of had this epiphany, this awakening of this, connecting to God in worship through washing dishes at his monastery. If something mundane and common as washing dishes can be an act of worship with and for God, we, you know, so can the way that we raise our kids. So can the way that we do our homework for school. The spreadsheet that we do as an accountant. Working as a medical professional with a patient. Right? All of life can be an opportunity to worship God in every situation. Now, a metaphor that I like to use, and I apologize if you've heard me use it before, is that connecting with God in worship is a lot like the radio. Because right now, as we sit in this room, there are dozens of radio signals that are being broadcast. But you and I can't hear any of them. Let's say that you wanted to listen to 93.7 The Fan, a favorite of mine, Pittsburgh Sports Talk Radio. Unless I am tuned in, unless I have a receiver that is tuned into that frequency, I'm not going to hear it. None of us are going to hear it. You know, maybe if I'm at like 93.5, I might hear like a few excerpts here and there surrounded by a bunch of static. But if you want clarity of that radio stream, that radio FM signal, you've got to be tuned into that particular frequency, 93.7. I think, I suspect that God is a lot like that. He is constantly speaking to us. He is constantly broadcasting his will. But only if we are tuned in will we hear him. And so my encouragement to practice the presence of God is throughout that week, take time to be still, to listen for God. And then carry that experience into public worship. And I think it will give us greater expectancy for God to move here. Because if you're tuned in to God speaking in small ways throughout the week, right, as we train ourselves to listen to him, when you walk through those doors, you're going to be kind of peaked. You're going to be prepared, primed to hear him speak here as well. That's the first one. Practice the presence of God. Second, utilize many different experiences of worship. Don't just rely on Sunday morning. Right? You can worship in your car, as you drive to work, you can worship by doing the dishes. You know, my, my kids get tired of me because, you know, as I'm loading the dishwasher, I'll often turn our smart speaker on. Uh, and, and, I mean, lately I've been listening to a musical that we were going to go see. But typically, I, I turn on something by Maverick City Music or, you know, some other worship song and, and just use that as a time because I hate doing dishes. But it's an opportunity for me to turn it into a, a, a moment of praise 
The kids are like, oh my gosh, not this song again. Because I, I get in, I overplay songs. But it's good. It's worshipful for me. You know, you can do it while you wash dishes or mow the lawn, you know. Uh, maybe not mowing the lawn. I don't know. You can find places to, to worship God. Gather in small groups of, of people to engage worship through the Lord, whether it's through song, whether it's through study. The, the goal of this point is about expanding our repertoire, learning different times, learning different places to engage in worship. Maybe use different liturgies for worship. You know, may, maybe if you're used to kind of just flowing by the Spirit, and there, that, that's a good way to be, but maybe borrow. I'm sure the library has it somewhere, the Book of Common. Someone's going to have the Book of Common Prayer that you know. Maybe use that for a little bit to guide your time in prayer, those scripted prayers, broadening our experiencing, allowing us to connect with God in more situations. Third is to prepare for Sunday. Now, if you were playing a sport, I know a couple kids playing, running track, baseball, I like to play soccer. If, if I go to try to play pickup soccer right now without stretching, it is going to not be good for me at the end. Right? If you're going to go and play a sport, you're going to stretch beforehand. If you're going to, to uh, you know, have a concert, you're going to warm your vocals up before you get there. There are things that you can do similarly to prepare your heart for worship when we gather as the people of God. Go to bed early, Sunday, or excuse me, Saturday night so that you don't feel like a truck hit you when you wake up Sunday morning. I I would suggest that if you have a big test coming up tomorrow, you're going to get a good night's sleep, or if you've got an important job presentation the next day, you'd make sure to get the sleep. So, you know, why why not also before coming into the presence of God? Now, when you get to church, come early. Get here 10 minutes early, chat with friends, prepare your heart for worship instead of feeling harried because you're rushing to just get here on time or a little late. Now, in saying that, I'm not trying to throw shade at anyone. Please don't feel attacked, right? I really don't care personally what time you roll in here. I'm encouraging, this, I'm encouraging you in this so that you, to help you get more out of worship. So again, no judgment for me. Do you prepare for Sunday morning? Do you walk through those doors with a sense of holy expectancy that God is going to do something that you're a part of? Right? Church worship services aren't just about you know, spectating at an event, but places that we participate with what God is doing. You, know, you can be active in prayer during the service, praying for God to move, praying for, the le- praying for me while I'm up here preaching, praying for the other congregants around you. Right? We can be active participants, not just passive specters, spectators. We get more out of this connection with God if we have our mind right to do so. So that's number three. Number four, learn to worship God with our whole being. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, he says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit. And this is in the context of tongues, so I'm taking a little bit out of context, but I think it still fits. I'll pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praises with my spirit, but I will will sing with my mind also. And so in this passage, Paul's talking about the the need to use just more than, excuse me, more than just one faculty. Whether it be our emotions, right, our spirit, our rational minds. And maybe you're like me, I'm very cerebral. I'm very heavily left brain leaning and rely on my rational sense. And music is one of those things that can be good for me. It can, you know, break over that corpus callosum divide, allows me to stop overthinking things and allow my emotions some freedom. 
And so maybe for, if, if you're like me, music can be one of those avenues uh, to do this more easily, to worship with more than just what you're used to relying on, kind of like using muscles you're not used to using. And that's why there's a command to sing to the Lord hundreds of times, it says, to make music to sing to God in the Psalms. Maybe you're the opposite end. Maybe you are more in touch with your emotions than I am, but you really need to double down on your mind in worship. You know, as we sing the music, don't, don't just follow the metal melodies on autopilot, especially if you're familiar with the song. That's very easy to do. But really think about the words that you're singing. Right? As we read the scriptures, as I preach, keep your mind active of what God might be teaching you. But I think we can take it another step further. Because Paul highlights the mind and emotions, but there are, there's another part of what it means to worship with our whole being. I already mentioned that Shema that Jesus told us to worship the Lord with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, the entirety of our being. So what does it look like to worship with your body? Let me give you some examples from the Hebrew lexicon. The Hebrew word that is usually translated in our English Bibles as worship literally means to prostrate, to bow down before. The word that is translated bless literally comes from the root to kneel. The word thanksgiving carries with it a connotation of an extension of the hands. And so these words that we use in worship, usually to describe an attitude that we have, have roots in physical postures that we use. So our bodies matter to God in worship. You can clap your hands, you can lift your hands, you can dance. They're all postures of praise. I would suggest, I'm not saying, I don't know if anyone does this, but just as an example, you know, if you stand in there singing with your arms crossed like this, that's not a reflection of praise. Now, I know this might feel foreign to some of us, but I think that our failure to respond to God in praise with our whole body has more to do with embarrassment, an unwillingness to be vulnerable. I I, I know that's for me. Like, I, I can't dance. Sometimes I try to dance. It doesn't look good. But who cares, right? Some of us, I'm a football fan, so I'm sorry that I keep going to those examples, but you know, if you're like a Steelers fan and you go to a Steelers game, they score a touchdown, what happens? The crowd goes crazy. They're jumping up and down. They're high-fiving each other. They're screaming. We get worked up over a football game, which is temporary, but we're more reserved in worship in God's house, which is an engagement with something far more significant. You know, Thursday night, Sarah and I were at a musical. We went and saw Six at the Benedum, and the crowd was pretty raucous, right? A lot of clapping, a lot of, lot of cheering, a lot of standing. Again, I didn't feel uncomfortable standing, you know, given a standing ovation at the end, because actually I would have felt less comfortable if I stayed sitting, because everybody else was standing up and clapping. We're giving, I'm giving this expression of, of of honor, I won't call it worship, but honor to these actors and actresses for the good job, just actresses on Thursday night, for the good job that they have done. But yet I don't necessarily carry myself with that same posture whenever I come before God. And so worshiping God with our whole being can help to deepen that offering to him. Fifth is this, cultivate a holy dependency. The work in worship is God's, not ours. Remember our definition of worship. Worship is the human response to the, to the divine initiative. You know, when Jesus was telling his disciples the parable of the vine, he said they had to remain connected to him. John fifteen five. for apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we actually believe that? Or do we experience 
Do we experience a dependency upon living under God's power, or are we overvaluing our own contributions? I'll finish up with these last two. Six, absorb distractions with gratitude. You hear a baby crying, bless the Lord that we've got young ones in the church growing in the family of God. If you hear someone coughing, use it as an opportunity to pray for their health. If you hear police or ambulance sirens going down our street, pray for the safety of the first responders and the call that they're, res- they're answering. It's not really, I, I have never perceived that to be an issue here at Restoration Church, but I know it is some places. You know, instead of getting grumpy about being distracted by someone or something, use that way to, f- you know, use that energy to find a way to be, worship the Lord in light of it. And then lastly, Learn to offer a sacrifice of worship. You're not always going to feel like it. There might be days that you're jiving with God, singing along feels like a natural outpouring of what you're experiencing. It's also going to be days when you're angry at God. You're feeling depressed. You don't want to contribute. Push through and worship anyway. Use it as a sacrificial offering to the Lord. And if you're training for a marathon... I've never trained for a marathon, but if you were, I imagine that there are days that you wake up and you're like, I don't really want to run today. But you do it, because you know if you want to reach that goal, you've got to train. You do it anyway, because you've got to put the practice in. I think this is what's true of the spiritual disciplines. Richard Foster says, what we must see is that the real question in worship is not what will meet my need, what do I feel like in the moment? The real question, he says, is what kind of worship does God call for? And the goal in all of this all of these disciplines is transformation from God. The fruit of worship is obedience. Foster says, last quote from him this morning, if worship does not propel us into greater obedience, it has not been worship. The goal here is not that we would be more effective in our modes, our rituals in worship, but that we can come to worship God in spirit and truth, have his divine spirit touch our spirits, respond in praise of the awe in awe of the one who created us, who saves us, who continues to guide us in his truth. So I'll close with these, finish with these reflection questions, and then we've got one more song. What are some liturgies in worship that you resonate with? What are some liturgies that you have trouble connecting to? Know yourself a little bit in that. What motivates you to stay, or maybe doesn't motivate you, to stay connected to the corporate dimension of worship? And then the last one is, how will you prepare yourself for worship next week? Let me pray and uh, close the service. Lord, thank you for all that you have done in our lives. God, may we come here as, uh, not as a way to get your attention, but in response to the way that you have already been involved in our lives. May we come with holy anticipation and expectation that you are in this place, that we can hear from you and that we can leave transformed living in greater obedience to your calling. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.